the interdependency part, it's always been the core of my philosophical belief. I have experienced it in so many ways at in the moments, so I can't really explain how it got into my head. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Tilsimbrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. If you're looking to add some pizzazz to that practice, check out their new line of additive glitter. Add a sprinkle of their additive glitter to any Speedball fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This glitter additive can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. This small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmaking in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's two favorite tools are his Fatatsu Wari Sankakoto 3mm V-gouge and his Josue Maroto 1mm U-gouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it because these tools do speak for themselves. So head on over to McLean's at imaclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and keep on carving. My guest this week is Mizen Shin. You may know her from her jaw-dropping printmaking woodcut installations she's done with floor-to-ceiling interconnected prints. We speak about her childhood growing up in South Korea with a painter mom, how her work speaks to the interconnected nature of society and the beauty and the peril of that truth. Her co-founding of a printmaking studio slash workshop slash gallery in Buffalo and her Stop Asian Hate project. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get connected with Mizen Shin. Hi, Mijun. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk to you. I feel like, in a way, it's kind of like coming home because we sort of tried to do a, a, a chat really early on in the podcast and it just didn't work out because we had the, the three people and then it just didn't flow and I was all new at podcasting and I didn't know how to make it work and I've always been like really wanting to kind of circle back and get a chance to talk to you again and, and actually have that one-on-one format that I did find worked really well. And so I feel like it's like three years in the making this conversation. So I'm really happy we've we've been able to connect and have it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm so excited to share more about me, but there's the other things that I'm involved. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, before we get into my questions, would you Please introduce yourself and just let people know who you are, where you are, and what you do. 
Awesome. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm Mi Jin Shin. I'm from South Korea. I moved to the States in 2015 to join the MFA program at State University of New York at Buffalo. I'm currently living in Rochester, Western New York, where I teach printmaking and professional development uh, from our art major seniors in the art and art history department at University of Rochester. I'm also a co-founder of Mirabo Press, located in Buffalo, New York. And actually, Miranda, you interviewed with Catherine, who is the president president of the Print Club of Rochester. Mm-hmm. I'm the vice president. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah. I'm getting the whole board here, one piece at a time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and oh. then I'm on the board member of the Mid-America Print Council. So um, I'm very excited about the upcoming conference in Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely have to make sure we we plug that because I know that this this podcast is a great platform for doing that. And I always think that the more people know about our print gatherings, the better for all people in all fronts. So we'll definitely chat about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You said that you were from South Korea, but Mm -hmm. where did you grow up in South Korea and what role did art play in that part of your life? So I was born in uh, Busan, it's the southern coastal city. It's probably second largest city in in South Korea. But my father's job was like he used to work at Hyundai Car Company, which is located in Ulsan. You can hear, you can find the Sansan competition. Uh (laughs) But uh, it's all like southern coastal city in South Korea. So that's where I grew up. And then my mom is a painter. Not so much these days, but she painted a lot when I was young. So she used to bring me to her studio. And then it was like a shared studio. So there were always artists whenever I went there. And she taught me how to draw and paint until I started taking art classes. I probably started painting when I was seven or eight-ish, something like that. And I remember I used to participate in like art competitions or events a lot when I was young. Probably my mom took me up one or two and then I probably really liked doing it. So I continued art practice. And then Whenever there were like art projects at school, I was one of the kind of students who was so excited about and loved to show my work in school. So I, I remember like when if I if my painting gets selected for the on campus exhibitions, like my mom always like saying me a good compliment Mm. or you know cheering me up so I was always in that kind of home environment my mom like my mom's painting is like everywhere at house (laughs) yeah yeah I feel mm. like I hear that fairly often when I do the interviews of young artistically inclined people who really got that positive reinforcement around art as a young person. And that really, you know, was some of like those first early feelings of like feeling good and feeling special and getting the positive attention. And then that kind of sets them up. I don't know, maybe everyone's still just chasing mom's accolades, you know, like <laughs> right. 20, 30, 40 years later. But, you know, just being recognized as as a way that you could achieve things and, and have people appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. 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 I mean, 
definitely like she also taught me a lot of different things, not just only art, like cooking and sewing. And then all the practices that she used to do, even she didn't really directly teach me. I just look at over her shoulder and then I kind of try to copy her or do something with her. So yeah, that really got into my whole life. And then it became just me (laughs) later. Yeah. Well, and I can imagine growing up seeing someone making art just a part of their day-to-day life and what it really takes to create art, which is means you carve time out for it and you dedicate yourself to it and you just do it, you know? I think mm-hmm. that that's got to be a formative experience as well and something that, you know, can stick with you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so where does printmaking come into your story? When were you introduced to that art form? It's actually a funny story. So, like I say, my mom taught me painting and drawing. And then I even went to like art, like um, like after school programs, because she knew I, I would enjoy it. And then whenever I asked her, she kind of let me go. So when I was in high school, um, I have to say, I, I was pretty good at studying, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, you know. And then my mom didn't want me to go to art school. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she wanted me to go to, like, you know, like, education program or other, like, programs that probably make a lot of money if you mm-hmm. get a job in that field. So she told me, no, you can't go to art school. <laughs> and she is. I, now I think it's it was her strategy. She told me if you get into these 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 very specific schools, you know, um, has a high reputation, then I can go. <laughs> so I worked That's some so hard. Good yeah. mom psychology right there. <laughs> right? She she like kind of like rejected my like request at first, but she now came up with a different suggestion. Yeah. Anyway, so when I was a freshman uh, in high school, I visited an art school, which I ended up going to for my undergraduate. It's called Hongik University. It's uh, one of the biggest art schools in South Korea. And there were like 11 departments in just art and design program, like printmaking, painting, oriental drawing, or sculpture, or graphic design, industrial design. There are so many departments in just one art program. And I'm not sure it's still like that, but it was when I was there, for sure. Like there are a lot of uh, art students. And then we were on this tour and I was just looking around studios and checking out the art building. And I saw the big, big etching press in the printmaking studio. <laughs> and at that time, I didn't know exactly what that was for. But I saw the sign next to the room labeled Panhua. It's Korean word for printmaking. Mm. So um it just looks so cool to me. <laughs> and I just, as I said, I got into art when I was young, especially watercolor and oil, because that's what my mom had at her studio. But I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue painting at that time. And then I, I wanted to use some like new tools or equipments in my art and printmaking studio were full of these different kinds of equipment I'd never seen before. So the big sexy press brought me into printmaking work pretty much. Yeah, the, the giant black press, I still remember. <laughs> and and then I applied to the 
printmaking program. And since then, I'm still making prints. Yeah, I think that I've heard that from a few people where it's just the kind of mystique of the actual equipment and how it looks technological, but also kind of ancient and maybe just fun just kind of to to get in there and roll up your sleeves and and start interacting with the equipment can be a really big motivator. And maybe because it it's not quite obvious what it's for if you don't know, you know, everyone kind of grows up even if they have very little exposure to art, you know, they see painting in Disney movies or something, you know, you can picture it, right? Like the paintbrush and the canvas and everything. But but printmaking has that, yeah, mystique, that mystery. I love that you call it, yeah, the, the big sexy printing press. Like, I yeah. think that's very oh accurate. God. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Like in, yeah, in my whole life at that time, right? Like in my high school, in my middle school, um, we didn't have a press. So I didn't even know what, printmaking is exactly until I went to college. So yeah, that mysterious, you know, matter machine (laughs) in the studio, it's just like, what is that? I want to use it. And I want to learn about more. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so why Buffalo for your MFA? How did that come about? Oh, it's all based on the network I'm I'm used to in. <laughs> so my professors from Korea, he went to UB for his MFA degree. And then I remember, I think I was the last, I was in the last semester of my undergraduate program and he moved from state to Korea. Um, and then he told me, oh, the school I went to is really cool if you're thinking about like developing a more conceptual part like a practice then go to this school because it's a very conceptual art school so I applied for it and I love that scholarship program they have like teaching assistant they get stipend but also they can teach courses so I apply for that so that's how I got got to yeah Buffalo (laughs) and had you been to the United States before or Buffalo or New York or any of that actually yes I my husband is American he's from Boston and but I met him in Korea (laughs) Mm, okay so before I decided like going to a grad program in the state, he and I went to see his family. And then we went to a couple schools to check. I love doing school tour, by the way. (laughs) I always do the tour first and then decide either I really want to go or not. So that's but I, at that time, I couldn't go to see Buffalo because it was a little bit far away from Boston. But before I went to Buffalo, I definitely came to the state first and then moved to there. Yeah, that's I mean, it might seem kind of obvious to say, but like, yeah, that's that's the way to do it. Tim and I picked up and went to Australia, having never been there. And it's just a little bit more shocking, I think, when you go to, you're already dealing with like the complexity of, of taking on an MFA program, taking on grad school. And then also you've got no kind of foundation of what to expect going into it. It definitely made it more complicated. So yeah, that's, that's, I'm sure it's good to go and visit if at all possible, for sure. And, and, you know, right. have family close by, you know, I mean, oh, Boston yeah. is mm. not that far. So that's nice too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, that was a 
a huge decision because I'm the only one in my family living in abroad. So when I told my mom and sister, um, I want to study in like in America. And then they said, what? <laughs> like, you're going to be away from us? Like how far? Like 13 hours? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So and there's a, the tuition is like it's something that the number was I just couldn't imagine how I would be able to pay for that much money. I didn't grow up in like wealthy family background. So I had to really think about what I can afford. Mm. So I I applied only the school that has funding support to yeah. international students, which there are not that many. <laughs> so true. yeah, yeah, yeah. So UB was uh, such an amazing school that they welcomed me so well, and then also I I could I could get a lot of support from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was just the place you were supposed to go, you know, that things kind of lined up and you mm -hmm. went. And that's, yeah, the best way to do it. Yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit specifically about your practice and the way in which you use printmaking and maybe non-traditional ways. You do installations, you do immersive spaces. How did that come about when you just kind of decided, you know what, I don't need to make rectangles on paper that go in frames? Mm-hmm. When I was doing my undergraduate in Korea, I felt this media in you know, printmaking doesn't get enough attention or understanding of process because so much of the printing process is hidden behind the scene by the time the artwork is shown to the public. So many times, you know, we see prints be undervalued or misunderstood by the large art communities. There are people out there who think, you know, prints as a cheaper imitation of other kinds of work like mm. drawing or painting. And of course, who are listening to this podcast, none of us are happy to hear when someone says, oh, it's just a print, yeah. you know, a copy, or yeah. it's not a real painting. It's not an original and, you know, something like that. So, um, of, of course, it just bothered me so much. And then at that time, I felt a sense of duty, you know, as a printmaker to not only share more about the process uh, and make it more accessible outside of our specialized studios, you know. So I always wanted to show the capabilities of printmaking to a wider audience and not get stuck with a specific group of critiques and people who already identify as art people. Mm -hmm. I started installation-based work and, and then adopting digital practices uh, to printmaking because I wanted to make this medium look more like a contemporary way, but also it's not always about just uh, process. It, it, there's also so many potential possibilities I thought I can reveal with my artwork. I also worked at a design company at that time. And then the, the kind of working environment helped me to be familiar with technologies, but also comfortable with communicating through my work with the people who have diverse background outside of the art school. You know, some of my clients say like, 
what is printmaking exactly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they have no idea what prints is and what kind of work we make in art, fine art. Probably some clients just make like a brochure or pamphlet and that that's what they think it's printmaking, you know. So, which isn't, I don't think it's wrong. I, I, I think it is always a part of printmaking, but a lot of people just don't see that the variety of the printmaking aspects in art form. So I wanted to include more medium, but also processes and then approaches into printmaking. Early on, like when I was trying to expand my work outside of the frame on the wall only, like I started using virtual spaces and try to make it more interactive between physical and virtual spaces, especially like using QR code. When I was in Korea at that time, QR code was just kind of like, um, it, it became popular like because most of the people started using smartphone, mm. having like access with the internet. So just taking a picture of the code and it raised to the like a website that was like kind of became trend at that time. So I used it in my art. And also the repetition from printmaking, um, you know, can be shown all at once with an installation. And I thought that's a very unique character in printmaking or so. I thought it's a very smart way to show, (laughs) you know, that the character of the medium. So that expanded the immersive structure pretty much through the aspect of multiplicity in printmaking and led me to contextualize the idea of networking by making materials and designing patterns by them. So my prints are the construction materials. And I build a space with them. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the first piece of yours I ever saw was from the How Things Are Made, mm-hmm. which is one of these immersive spaces that you're talking about. And I think just to kind of give a little bit of tangible context, you know, to talk about this particular piece, you've got a, a woodcut that's 34 inches by 34 inches that's repeatable, that it just sort of all fits together. And you would just wallpaper and ceiling paper and floor paper <laughs> a space with it. And and it was such a creative way to embrace the multiplicity of printmaking, which is what you, you spoke of. And of course, it's something that you see in the commercial side of printing. If you think of well, well traditional wallpaper, I mean, th- those were prints, you know, before they were being digitally produced. But to harness it in art making, it really is something that you know, you don't see very often and you really don't see it, particularly with prints, which often are, you know, thought of in, in to be interacted with in these really traditional ways. So there's a couple of things in there. And one, I'd love to just kind of have you tell the story maybe a little bit about taking on that project and figuring out, you know, how many prints do I have to make to cover a space and how are they going to fit together and how do I produce them? And then also... You didn't just stop at doing something that's kind of like that visual stunning. It actually has this really interesting message about the inter- interdependency through systems and how it's all connected. So sort of two-part question. So maybe can you talk about the logistics of doing an, like a huge installation like that? And then also what is the, the, the theoretical push behind it? Mm-hmm. 
maybe I will start with the concept first and then cover the actual fabrication part yeah. <laughs> because that's how the work led me to do that. So uh, ingredients that make cookies and also the machine making cookie <laughs> and then yeah. also like the nature resources like mining process that used to make machines so the it's just an example between on iron and then also the chokuchi cookie you don't really see the direct connection but if you're looking into these manufactured processes um, you will find that connection between through other processes. So that was the physical connection that I wanted to reveal in my art. So that's why everything connects through each other. So there are four panels total. And then when I designed it, I um, wanted to make, you know, I wanted to make them all connect to each other. So no matter what, which design goes to top or bottom or left and right, they can just continuously repeat, but also continuously connect to each other. So that was the how things are made. Wallpaper projects started, and then because I am, I I experienced this interdependency throughout throughout our societal system as a one individual person, but also one of the elements of the society, you know. So my presence, presence is very important, but also I wanted to highlight that in my artwork. So the, sometimes, you know, when the viewers are in the, my work, they're the focal point of themselves is part of our system. You know, they... I, I wanted to them feel like they are in that system, you know. So that's why the immersive idea kind of rebuild in that installation. Yeah. 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 It it reminds me a little bit of this. I think it's in one of the Dalai Lama's books. He talks about if you were eating a sandwich and you truly understood everything that went into creating the sandwich it would be an absolutely transcendent experience. Because if you thought just the bread alone, right? Like how many people had to touch the bread? How many people had to go into making the butter? And, and all of it and how, you know, all of these hidden systems that are not a part of our lives, but so dramatically affect the way that we live and the fact that they're all so interdependent as your work speaks to, it's kind of mind-boggling to try and wrap your head around it and keep it all in your head at the same time. Really a beautiful message, though, because it is the interdependency that I think people forget about. I think particularly in America being so individualistic, there's not that attitude of the rising tide raises all boats and, you know, when I heard it's going to hurt something else and when you heard it's going to hurt something else. But of course it is, you know, a part of the fabric and part of the insane reactions we've seen to the pandemic comes from, you know, people not accepting the interdependency in this country as, as much as, you know, I've, I've seen other places anyway. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I don't know when I started thinking about this idea, this philosophical idea, but it really helped me a lot. Like since I was young, like, I I just res respect so many people and then I just appreciate so many things and then things that I thought I 
you know, I, I didn't know I was privileged in that situation. But later on, I find that out like, oh, I was, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's what what I'm trying to talk about through my artwork. That's the, the main message that I'm trying to address. But of course, I, I don't usually use just one object as an like a exemplary, just try to change the topics. Actually, after pandemic happened, I started like researching mass t- public transportation data. So mainly showing how much we're interactive and also connected through the public per- um, the transportation. So I used the, the flight pattern between mm. continents. So li- literally like revealing how often like how many times we go back and forth between the countries and then cities the complexity the impact just shows through the work and so that's what I focused on early 2021 yeah Mm. and what time did you start your your project the the use your voice stop Asian hate was that also around this time yes actually Mm -hmm. so after I started that transportation data map um a couple months later, the, um, the spot shooting in Atlanta, Georgia happened in March. Mm. So I started the campaign, Use Your Voice, Stop Asian Hate, like probably in April 2021. So it was originally just a social media post in response to rising hate crimes as a way to speak out against racially motivated prejudice and violence. So I made a blind embossed print it says use your voice hashtag stop Asian hate. Like my Instagram. I posted a picture that I'm holding the print and one of my friends wanted to buy the print that I posted and and then I switched the direction of this work to more of like campaign styles. Mm. So, you know, when I saw the opportunity to generate donations, because if there are people who are uh, willing to support or who would love to support or who would love to buy the prints to show their support, then I can make more prints because I have the, I have the abilities, but also I have the resources. So I started doing the campaign. So the message is being translated into a variety of languages to engage diverse linguistic communities. Mainly, I I sometimes see that like people misunderstand when it comes to social justice or human rights issues. If you're not the direct victims, you cannot talk about it. You know, mm. that kind of misunderstanding because you're not Asian. You that doesn't mean that you cannot talk about it. If you're not because you're not black, you cannot talk about Black Lives Matter. Right. So I wanted to include diverse linguistic communities as much as possible. So there are actually two versions of the prints um, being made for the campaign. One, the blind embossed prints. So these are being traded in exchange for donations to organizations supporting AAPI communities. So people who want to buy the prints, then I get the money and then I collect it and then donate to organizations or if anybody wants to make a huge donation then they send the money directly to the 
place they want to support, and then I just send the prints. That's how I've been raising money. And then there are also screen prints produced for mainly free public distribution to raise um, awareness. There were so many great places I found once I started the campaign. One of them was the International Print Center in New York. Um, mm-hmm. They contact me like, and then say, can we put some prints in our you know, place so people can pick it up or see the message? And then, sure. So I sent them some screen prints, something like that. So, But these days, I also sell these screen prints, not just for the free distribution because I wanted to raise more money. Mm-hmm. And then I'm doing also like public workshops. So local uh People can come and then make the prints with me and they take the prints with them to share with their neighbors or their friends, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen photos of of both the screen prints and the blind embossed and the the blind embossed looks so beautiful. I feel like that is a, a really powerful message with that kind of gentle handling that just the blind and boss offers, I, I think is just a wonderful, I don't know, it's just like, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. And so those are still available, like the project's still ongoing, people can go and, and purchase and help support the project? Yes, the prints are available on Mirabeau website. It's my, the fine art printmaking press, I work with my two partners, and then people still can buy the print online. And then I mail the print or currently I'm having an exhibition in Rochester. So people from local people can just come in and then buy the work from the gallery. Yeah. I want to make sure that we've got time to talk about Mirabo Press because it's really last time we spoke, it was just kind of starting. I know you were just like almost setting up the shop, but mm-hmm. now it's been going for quite a few years. And I feel like I've watched all those things that the three of you were talking about kind of starting to manifest. And so can you, yeah, just speak to Mirabo and everything you the services that you offer, like the, the the residencies, the printing, the exhibitions, you know, everything that kind of you're thinking of doing and accomplishing and the kind of the significance, I feel like, of, of bringing that to Buffalo that didn't really have that kind of print presence, at least that I know of, before you took it on. <laughs> sure, sure. So I met both my partners, Bob Fleming and Rachel Shelton at University of Buffalo. Rachel was my grad school colleague. She, her studio was right next to mine. So we used to talk about our work all the time. And then Bob was the community artist using UB printmaking facilities. So UB has a this great program until pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. So people from local you know, artists, they can pay per semester and then they use the, the facility uh, because, as you know, um, printmaking requires some specific setting and then equipment. So he was one of the communal print shop user, and then we all became friends, and and then also collaborated on artwork and shared interest. And then we found that we all have a same very similar interest in opening a print shop. Mm. <laughs> so we founded Mirabeau Press. It's actually 
Me is M I from my name, Mizin, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. R A is from Rachel, R and then Bob P O. So it's, it's Mirabeau so cute. Press. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I know every time I say tell this kind of behind story to people, they are like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we founded it in 2018, and yeah, have been working on projects local and. Regional and international artists. So, and then yeah, we offer workshops and work with artists who have experienced with printmaking and also some who have never done printmaking before. You know, so we don't really have any limitation in in terms of their experience level. And we also publish editions as well. We recently published four editions. With Nick Rus, he's a Rochester-based artist. And sometimes we start project from like literally like A to Z. You know, some artists come to us and then, okay, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I want to work with you. Then we start from there. Where some people have a very specific like trajectory or like kind of like ideas, but maybe it will. Be modified, or it will be adjusted once they start working with us, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then recently, we started this i this one a collectors club. It's called Mirabo Collectors Club, in which members receive a prints or a portfolio that we make. Of course, they will get some discount on our workshops. So we don't really have a very Consistent workshop plans yet because we basically have been designing workshop based on the request. You know, based like our friends will tell us we would love to learn more this, 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 and okay, maybe we will make one. So we we that's how we've been doing workshops so far. But in the future, we probably have a more like consistent、um, scheduled. Workshops, but yeah, that's pretty much what we've been doing.、Yeah. So I mean, really, you you do it all is what it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wonderful. Facility wise, we have two presses for intaglio relief and mono printing. The only medium we can't do is lithography. <laughs> ah, uh-huh. So yeah. But we do have screen printing studio. You know, we have the one arm press, so you know we can have a fairly large image. We can work on that in our studio, and then we have digital prints, like a printer. So mainly we use them for like positive or negative films. But if clients wants wants to like combine the medium, like between digital and then intaglio. Which Nick is working with us again? <laughs> Then we do that. So that's kind of what we have in our studio. Yeah, and then you're also going to be involved with the Screen Print Biennial, which is coming、oh. up as well. Correct? That's a、yes. great Western New York、uh, staple and a wonderful event. Yeah. So in our building, we have. A like gallery space、um, where we usually host exhibitions for artists we work with. By the way, we also have a residency program, <laughs> <Yep> so <laughs> yeah, artists can come and work with us or learn some new techniques. So m- mostly, either the artists 
we work with or invited artists. So we exhibit their work. But this time, this fall, we will be hosting the Screen Print Biennial 2022. So there is no entry fee. So please apply for it. The deadline is May 31st. So the work in the Biennial this year will be shown in two cities, Albany from September to October and Buffalo at Mirabeau Press from November to December. So once the show is over, we will cover the shipping and then the artwork will be uh, sent to the artist mm. after December. Yeah. So I do want to make sure that we've got time to to talk about the Mid-America Print Council conference, because at the top of the hour, we promised we would. So tell us about your involvement in that and what it's going to be and how people can get involved. So the Mid-America Print Council, the conference this year, it will be Kent State University um, in Ohio. It's from October 13th to 16th. You still accept some like, you know, programs and then applications. So that's that, uh, that's due by February 28th. So please check out Mid America Print Council website and then you will be able to find some projects that you um, can develop or design or participate in. Yeah. Beautiful. So is there anything else kind of uh, on the future horizon for you that you're looking forward to and you want to make sure people know about? So just personally, I will be in a residency this summer in Europe. That will be my first time art residency outside of the America. Mm. <laughs> and then I will continue my research on the transportation and the immigrants the, the, sorry, the migration um, project that I worked on like in early 2021. So I'm very excited about doing, you know, uh, continuing the research. And I mean, I love teaching. I'm always planning projects for upcoming semester. Teaching has been like, it's it's a big part of my life. I love the interactive between students and generation and culture. So I'm thinking about writing book, sharing printmaking techniques. They don't require expensive equipment. Mm. So I'm really in- interested in making printmaking more accessible. And I will be doing more maybe workshops and probably uploading some video demonstrations for free educational resources online. Um, Like I said, education is a a big part of my life. And then I want the printmaking is more accessible and then also requires less expensive materials. So that's my um, goal as an educator, but also artist and printmaker. That's lovely. I feel like that is an absolutely wonderful note to wrap up on and because you can now tell people please where can they find all of this the 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 videos and your projects and everything that you're up to you are incredibly busy woman like (laughs) (laughs) you can find me uh, on my website mizinshin.com m-i-z-i-n-s-h-i-n and then instagram or so um at mizinshin and then if you would like to check out the videos I've been making, um, just search my name, Mizinshin, on YouTube. Then you will be able to find my channel. 
there are not that many videos yet, but I promise I will make more. <laughs> and Mirabel Press can be found on Instagram at Mirabel Press or our website, mirabelpress.com. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me about all your projects and your really interesting work. And I'm going to be at SGCI, so I'm really looking forward to the, the chance to see your show and meet. And um, yeah, we'll just definitely keep in touch. And uh, thank you for all the amazing print work you're doing out there in the world. Oh, thank you, Miranda. And thank you so much for doing this. This is amazing podcast. And I have, I told you before, I listen it all the time when I drive. So yeah, thank you for doing this for the community. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Well, I hope you have a beautiful rest of the evening. And Stay warm um, in Buffalo. I know it's that time of year. So, <laughs> yeah. You too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. If you liked today's episode, we also have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts with our editor, Timothy Pauschak, who digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if you've listened this far, you might be that special kind of print friend who would leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did. No joke, it really does make an impact in the world of podcasting. Unless you didn't like the episode, in that case, you don't, you don't, you don't need to leave a review. It's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Jay Lee Garcia. Lee is a professor at Kent State University whose multidisciplinary practice explores her biracial identity and other contemporary Latino-American issues. We talk about what it was like to grow up in Dallas, family dynamics when one parent is a seventh-generation Texan and the other is a child of undocumented immigrants, the 2016 election, and making work about border politics in the Midwest. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.